And we're back with another episode of Ladies First because I told you I would be back and I told you this time I was going to stick with regular recordings. Yes, I'm Corey and I'm back with more episodes and I have Taylor with me today. Hello. And we have a lot to talk about. I don't know if we're going to get through all of this today, but... We're going to be kind of talking about cultural contexts and, you know, coming out. You know, there's nothing loaded with that or any of the expectations that go with that. But, you know, it's been a while since we've really delved into ladies first. And we used to do some pretty uh, heavy episodes. And I was like, you know what? What better time than when the world is on fire for us to get introspective? So here we are. Uh, Taylor was very gracious in joining me today. Um, she's written quite a few pieces for our site, um, especially analysis pieces. You may have read, um, especially one she did about Captain Marvel and complex trauma. She's also talked about cats. She's talked about Delta Ray, which I also particularly love that band. So we were kind of gushing behind the scenes on that. But anyways... I kind of came to her with the idea of like, hey, do you want to talk about, you know, this whole idea of celebrity coming out, you know, and particularly like I feel like there's maybe some entitlement there between fandoms and celebrities coming out. And she's like, yeah, okay, we could delve into that. And then she came back with to me and she's like, I have so many notes. So we should have a good episode. We should have a good episode. I think so. Taylor's being awfully quiet right now. <laughs> okay. I was just like letting you, making sure you said your piece. Um, this is my first podcast. Thank you again, Koi, for having me. Um, so, yeah. Coming I out. I easy on her, but I mean, like, they've been listening to me for Lord knows how long, and they're still here. So, I, I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do right now. <laughs> You're totally okay. Um I do want to maybe start this off by kind of contextualizing what the closet is. And I know, Taylor, you did some research on the, you know, when the idea of the closet even came about. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, thank you. Um, So back in the fall, I was doing a lot of reading on queer theory and queer history because I was working on a piece about the show Carnival Row and pansexuality and how maybe pansexuality can be depicted accurately on TV. And I was reading a great book by George Chauncey called Gay New York. And it's basically about gay male culture in New York um, um, in the half century before World War II. And and something that he talks about early in, in his introduction is about the closet as a metaphor. And to any queer person and the idea of coming out, the closet is how we conceptualize it it's and we also use the closet to understand queerness before in the past like before stonewall but actually as chauncey points out there was no record of the closet as a metaphor in queer writings before the 1960s so we have about a half century ish of time with the metaphor but it is completely dominated our discourse on queerness. And it's actually kind of mind-blowing when you think about that the closet isn't really new. I mean, isn't really old. It's pretty new. Mm-hmm. And something he then goes into is the term coming out. And coming out has always been actually a communal term. It's always been about community. And he cites that coming out was used originally, like in predominantly, when talking about these public spectacles of coming out. So in pre-World War II, in large cities like New York, Philly, and Baltimore, you would have these huge balls of, like, masquerade dance balls that were queer people kind of taking straight culture and twisting it on their own. So as he notes, often with gay male culture, they would take women's culture and twist it. So coming out was basically playing on women's culture, as he says. It was the debutantes being formally introduced or coming out, quote, into society. And so 
gay men would go to these balls and drag and come out in society in front of gay and straight peers. And these were reported on in the paper. Like these were huge spectacles with hundreds of people sometimes. And so you, like he cites, for example, a Baltimore newspaper in the thirties that mentions how these Queens essentially came out at these parties and it was deliberately mirroring debutante ball rituals. And so to quote George Chauncey, quote, gay people in the pre-war years then did not speak of coming out into what we call the gay closet, but rather coming out into what they called homosexual society or the gay world, a world neither so small nor so isolated, nor often so hidden as closet implies. And that, I remember reading that and was like super mind blown. Cause I'm like, that's very interesting that we took a term that was like coming out was like this big inclusive event, like going out into the world, not mm-hmm. so, like a positive, like into society versus what we think of as a closet you know, yeah. Um, like he said, you, you quoted him, neither so small nor so isolated nor so hidden. So obviously we have, you know, in pre-war at least, we have these big events that are, like you said, even being reported on. So at some point, um, we took a few left turns and got to where we are, where we now classify coming out of you know, it's, I'm coming out of the closet. That's really the understanding that we have, you know, modern, postmodern, whatever you want to call our current contemporary Mm -hmm. times. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it's very, and this is less than a hundred years ago. Yeah. Like definitely what I've learned from reading queer history is how quickly things can change in society and how quickly we can forget. Mm -hmm. Because this is something um, he talks about in his book is, Actually, the United States, especially New York, was more open and tolerant of queer culture and queer presence, like, up until World War II. So basically, we you had, like, the 1920s and 30s, and America was in a very experimental time, and you, queerness was very visible in working-class culture, and so... It was after the 30s and into the 40s when we started to see backlash against queer people. And so that's when things went really underground. It was around World War II. And then you had the Lavender Scare scare with McCarthy. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, well, gay people are already hiding things. And if they get blackmailed by commies, then they're more likely to be spies against us. And, like, thousands of queer people lost their jobs in the government because of it. And so, actually, queer queer phobia intensified in the second half, in like this, in the half, in the midpoint of the century, and in the second third of the century. Mm-hmm. Like Stonewall was very much about two two decades of repression that had gone really bad. After a few decades of huge experimentation, like, and that even. And we're not even, that's not even touching on all of the experimentation and reshaping of queer identities that had started in the 19th century. Excuse me. Well, I remember one of the shows that came out that I know we've talked about on the site is Dickinson. Mm-hmm. And yes. It's on Apple TV. And we, you know, we've kind of acknowledged that the relationship between Sue and Emily in that show, it's portrayed as you know overtly romantic and overtly sexual Mm -hmm. and if you go and you listen at least to uh, Ella Hunt in her interview she's talking about like yeah they didn't have the terminology back then that we do today you know Mm -hmm. the entire idea of being able to do that wasn't necessarily there but we know there were romantic friendships we know women had these very all-consuming friendships with other women. Yeah. But they didn't necessarily have the theoretical framework that we do today or even the terminology that we do today. You know, I don't even know that they would have 
even identified as lesbian or bisexual at that time. Yep. Like, I'm right now rereading a book called Passions Between Women by Emma Donahue, and it's about the depiction of lesbians and British print in the 18th century. And something that she really harps on is there was no distinction between lesbian and bisexual women. Mm-hmm. And um, something that, like, they definitely, like, would compare sometimes queer women's relationships to heterosexual ones and their passion and stuff, but it really depended on the particular women involved in class. Like, class is a huge thing in how queerness is articulated by anyone. Right. Um, yeah. Because it's a lot of the queer experimentation and culture that developed in the past 150 years, 200 years, was by working-class people, by people of color in working-class areas where it was more tolerated and more visible. And so... Man, things changed. (laughs) I know, like... My goodness. Like, I'm not trying to generalize, but you know the current conceptions right now is that you have the working class red state people are the ones who are quote unquote super Christian and super homophobic and Mm -hmm. it's the uh, coastal liberal elites that and I'm I'm just kind of you know the contrast between now and then is really really astounding it's funny you mention that because I was reading a Tumblr thread there is a one Tumblr blogger star dash Anise who I might send you some of her work um, for the site. She is a blogger whose girlfriend was an activist back in the 90s, and she often will, like, Star and often write about, like, like, later core activism. And on one thread, she was talking with someone, and that person pointed out that AIDS kind of helped reshape the image of the queer activist and main queer person because many of the people who died from AIDS were the most, like, radical, sex-positive, drag-punk people. You know, mm-hmm. the drag queens, tra- um, working-class trans women who are often sex workers, very sex-open, um, partying gay men, bisexual swingers, like, very much open people who wanted to rebuild society. And then the ones who survived were the most, like, straight-passing people. And around that time in the 80s, an article was written by a gay man called The Conservative Argument or Conservative Case for Gay Marriage. And I was, like, reading that article, and I was, like... It was so interesting to read a yuppie, like, conservative gay man trying to argue for gay marriage. Because it wasn't about social progress at all. It was quite funny. And I also had seen a cartoon, like a newspaper cartoon, um that dealt with this class tension, how you had white gay men in finances, um, like at odds with poor working class lesbians. And so you've always had like upper class, like cis gay people who have reaped benefits, but not necessarily have been like open to helping the people on the ground doing all the activist stuff and protesting. Mm -hmm. And, And it also, again, goes back to Stonewall, which how Stonewall is very much was a riot based around working class people that were trans, gender nonconforming, people of color. color. Yeah. And something that I I read, too, was uh, an account from a a gay reporter who was in New York at the time and how the Stonewall Inn it was one of those places that was very open to queer homeless youth. So you had a lot of these homeless queer kids who could pay a few bucks and spend the whole night there and wouldn't have to drink unless they would take, be able to be safe and have shelter. So of course it makes sense that you have these very trotted on people who are very frustrated by cops. Then you have these homeless kids who don't believe anywhere else to go. So of course they start fighting back. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we don't talk about class and how that really affects sometimes the perception of queerness and queer activism, I think means we miss a lot, especially well, even today. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, it is very, very different story if you are, you know, wealthy or well off mm-hmm. or you know upper middle class 
the risks you have to yourself, and I'm not saying you don't have any risks, but what you face is vastly, vastly different from, say, a black trans woman. And, I mean, let's be real, there's a lot more white, white passing. Yep. Upper middle class cis LGBTQ members than there are POC because, you know, this country has a very complicated and long and not great history with racial oppression to boot. Now, mm-hmm. you know, the U.S. isn't the same as, like, in Europe where you have almost... I don't want to quite call them caste systems, but the class system there is very entrenched. And it is very... You know, America is very open to nouveau riche Mm -hmm. compared to Europe. Europe, it's old money. Here we have old money families, but the average person isn't necessarily going to recognize the names or even, you know, know that they still exist. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, uh, the American sense isn't so much entrenched of like, familial blood so much as it how much money do you have right now how much power do you have from that money Mm -hmm. and if you don't have money and because of our racial history a lot of people of color do not have money and i'm not saying that a lot of white people don't but I, i you know the ratio is much higher tends to be much higher if you're a person of color so your obstacles alone just from class are then compounded by your race, are then compounded by the fact that you're not heterosexual and could be further compounded by the fact that you're not cisgender. Mm -hmm. So if you have somebody who is like multiple intersections of this, yeah, they're gonna, I mean, it's just, they are naturally going to face more obstacles than you as an upper class, upper middle class, white, cisgender, gay, bi, lesbian, pansexual. Agreed. Yeah. We're not saying you don't have obstacles, but we're saying, and again, it's, I I know people tend to be offensive of like, oh, well, you just don't know what I have to go through being queer. Like, Both of us know what you have to go through being queer. We get it. It's called Ladies First. We talk about queer issues. But we're saying that if you are ostensibly white and you are middle to upper middle to upper class and you're also cis, you are generally going to have far less challenges or and cultural expectations placed upon you when you quote unquote come out than somebody who doesn't or, or somebody who inhabits far more of these intersections. And I want to kind of segue into this, especially with fandom. And I am I'm, I'm kind of hearing some Kill Bill sirens in my head of like, you're treading on thin ice here. But there are certain demographics in different fandoms. And fandoms that tend to have wider characters maybe tend to attract more of the fairly financially stable white cisgender members and they generally generally again maybe don't have as many challenges that they're aware of as others and they tend to think that you know maybe somebody else needs to come out because they don't know what that other person's thinking or what that other person is going to go through or what that other person risks by doing this. I totally agree with you. When you first started talking about, you know, upper class queer people, I was reminded of Caitlyn Jenner and how she is a trans woman, but she's also a very wealthy white trans woman. And that means she has, you know, the resources just to access medical care she needs resources to be able to afford the clothes she wears that are gender affirming Mm -hmm. 
And in terms of fandom, I definitely know I've seen a lot of discussion online just how so much our depiction of queerness in media, it's the white people, or if there's an interracial, interracial relationship, it's between a white person and a person of color. And it's very popular if one of if at least one of those is well off. Yes. And again, I know some of that is kind of like escapist fantasy. And I'm I totally get if you're like, "Man, I would love to see a rich queer woman like kicking ass and taking names." The problem I think is when we start seeing this these trends of it's a rich cis white lesbian rich cis white lesbian rich cis white lesbian rich cis white you know when that seems to be the only type that gets Mm -hmm. to be rich yeah it's the idea of there's one type of queer person there's one type of like way to express your identity Mm -hmm. and it very much relates to our topic of coming out that there's only one true coming out narrative right and that it's you are yeah, it's mainly you are coming out to your parents who are religious and somehow and you're like white middle class character and they may accept it or they may don't. Or you're like white middle class and your parents are maybe kind of liberal. So you have just, you're justified in your nervousness and anxiety. But overall, I mean, you at the back of your mind know there's some amount of security. So those like are two main like expressions. Or you have the tragedy porn, which is yes, yes, the, the person of color coming out to wildly homophobic parents and getting kicked out and being homeless and having all this massive shit happen to them, and they're very conveniently almost always a person of color. Yeah, it's very much a way. It's not like subtle racism in media by saying that people of color are more likely to be homophobic or to be misogynistic. Um, when, in fact, historically, that was less likely. I mean, um, during the Harlem Renaissance, it was a huge time, like, a very important time to be a queer person, like, very visible. Um, in this one book by Lillian Faderman on, like, lesbians, you know, she talked about how you would have lesbian weddings in Harlem because they would get, like, a gay guy to get, the certificate for them, or they would masculinize a name on the certificate, and you'd have, like, legal marriages between um, women of color in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And then, as Lillian Faderman points out, you'd have white people coming in to take part in the revelry and almost be, do a tourist cultural appropriation of queer, queer, col- colored queer culture. You know, queer people of color take, like, appropriate their culture and be tourists in Harlem. And you see this, and so you have this historical foundation leading into the art we create, you know? Right. I remember um, watching this, the HBO, a black lady sketch show, and they had a sketch about two lesbians at a lesbian bar, and they were both women of color, and just being like, kind of being blown away just seeing only women of color in a queer space on TV, and seeing in the comments of the YouTube clip on how, like, meaningful it was to see a black butch woman on TV and not really having the representation before. Well, and I also kind of want to touch base on, because I do, I would like to do another episode with you, Taylor, specifically on, like, the butch femme discourse. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of history there, but I'm realizing I think that's going to take its own episode. So I would like to officially invite you back to do another episode on that. Sounds good. Like, you know what? This Thanks. is going to go way beyond the scope of this <laughs> of our current topic. That's do, totally fine. I do want to talk to you more about that. But right now I want to talk to you about how we've kind of almost come to feel this sense of entitlement to somebody else's coming out. I totally agree. Um, Especially if they're, you know, a famous person. And yeah, we talked about, you know, they do have some class privilege, but why are we kind of assuming we have any kind of entitlement to what is still a very personal decision? Especially, like, you see that with fandoms. And unfortunately, I'm not saying our listeners do this, but, you know, there are 
what is it, real person shifts and tin hatting and people who work themselves up into thinking two actors or actresses who are playing gay on TV with each other are actually secretly in love with each other and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know where I'm going with this, right? Oh, definitely. Um, Like, I've been thinking a lot about coming out and how personal it is and how everyone has their own expression and so often we have these coming out episodes on TV and it's like an actual like big deal Mm -hmm. and how it like takes up a whole episode. And it's kind of like you said, we have our set coming out stories that we can expect. And it feels very performative for straight cis people, you know, Mm -hmm. what they expect a coming out to look like. And something I made note of was in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, in the second season, in the 10th episode, you have the main lead, male lead, Titus Andromedon, who is a gay black man. And he talks with his boyfriend, because his boyfriend comes out to his family in that episode. And Titus Andromedon talks with his boyfriend about his coming out, and how he didn't really have a coming out because he ran away from home, in like, right after high school, after he got married to his friend. And I'm going to read this quote to you because I think it's very relevant. Okay. So Titus says, I never got the drama, the hugs, the tears, and more importantly, I never got to stare bigotry in the eye and say, homie, don't play that. And so I think this quote really encapsulates the archetypal coming out and how it is. it has been taken from this community thing between queer people and directed towards as a performance for straight people and to give straight people this sense of catharsis because yes, it is about the person coming out, but it is as much about them as it is the viewer. Yes. You know, it's the idea of looking bigotry in the eye. It's on a meta, on a meta textual level. It's like looking into the camera of the TV show, looking at, through the viewer's screen. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and I mean we, we really do need to move beyond we have these set coming out stories. And part of the problem is, for the longest time, the big catharsis for the LGBTQ community was getting the coming out story and, mm-hmm. you know, having the person be okay on the other end. And then it was just kind of like, okay, now your story's over. So we never really got to see, and this is something Elizabeth and I had talked about way back in the day of Ladies First, and we were kind of like, why are queer women how they are in dating? And, you know, part of it is like, when everybody else, you know, your straight peers are getting to do dating in high school, you're really not getting that. So you can't do that until you're in your 20s. But then part of it was also the media, it was First, you're all dying. Mm -hmm. Then, oh, you get to live. So there's that progress. Then it's all about the coming out stories. But it's been about the coming out stories and having a good ending to that for so long that we are just now starting to get these stories that are more like, well, okay, but there's more to your life after coming out. And there's more to your life than, say, having one partner You know, most people aren't going to get married to the first person they date after they come out. You know, you are going to have more than one dating partner in your life. You're going to have breakups. You're going to have all sorts of things. And now that we're getting some of the TV that's starting to be like, hey, we should delve into these topics because this is your actual life. We're seeing some pushback from the fandom. It's like we, we've got these stories and we've kind of become comfortable with these stories and we want the coming out and that's our happily ever after with the first girlfriend or boyfriend or, you know, person we date and that's it. We don't want to explore, you know, all the wonderfully colorful stuff that happens after that. It reminds me of a podcast you did on, like, queer coding and queer baiting and talking about you know, being queer baited in the early 2000s. And mm-hmm. I often want to, I associate that with like long term characters who have a 
platonic relationship go on for a long time. And I've almost seen this pushback in fandom against slow burn queer relationships in media um, because they think they should be together and not like risk being queer baited. And I think mm-hmm. there's validity in wanting stories about where the couple start out together to get that representation. But it is also important for queer people to see these like slow burn epic romances played over time. And it really comes down to creators seeing queer people not as this own separate queer genre, mm-hmm. but about queer people belonging to every genre and thus being an, allowed to have every kind of story. Well, I, I don't know if you remember, but the original ship for Alex Danvers was with Maggie Sawyer on Supergirl. Mm-hmm. And this is something that Elizabeth and I took some flack on. Because when Alex and Maggie broke up, a lot of people were pissed and a lot of people felt cheated. And Elizabeth and I had the stance of, this is part of queer life. You are going to have more than one partner, and that's okay. And for me personally, on Supergirl, I think Kelly is better suited, you know, temperamentally complimentary for Alex anyways. Mm -hmm. And I think that fits into the, just because you're dating someone now doesn't mean that's going to be the person you maybe necessarily end up with or who is right for you. And I think that's an important story to be told. And again, it's about going beyond just your story is a coming out story. Mm-hmm. Yes, because I'm going to read you another quote. It's um, from, it's called The Celluloid Closet. It's out like censorship of gayness in films. And it's, quote, any story dealing however seriously with homosexual love is taken to be a story about homosexuality or stories dealing with heterosexual love are seen as stories about the individual people they portray, end quote. And so it's this kind of, like, idea yeah. that gay people are only defined by the... By being gay. Yeah. You know, it's not that they're a gay person... Like, they're not a person who happens to be gay. They are a gay person, period. Mm-hmm. And it's That's very... It's one asset of who you are. Yes, like, for me personally, I don't really... It's hard for me to really connect with most, like, queer media on coming out. Honestly, what resonated most with me was, in recent years, was Rosa Diaz when she came out as bisexual. Because Mm -hmm. it was... It started out in one episode where, like, Charles ran into her talking to her girlfriend on the phone and her, like, being like, oh, I'm bi. And then having a whole episode where she is using the label a lot and help friends helping her come out to her parents. And then it continues on when she has a girlfriend and who is a different girlfriend this time. And that resonated more with me because you had the coming out episode, but her queerness kept coming up. Yeah. Like, um, even Stephanie Beatrice had wondered about her character sexuality because in past seasons, her character had mentioned, you know, how this one woman was thick or something. And she was like, hmm, that sounds like a very, like, queer lady thing to say. And then she, like, went to see the writers, and they had already had this kind of in mind, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, it didn't just happen overnight. Well, and the and... thing that I really liked that we took away with that story was, up until we see the coming out with her parents, we've had Rosa... You know, she's a hard ass, and she's always defended, you know, tough love. Tough love. I'd rather tough love. Mm -hmm. You know, it did great for me. And then we see kind of the starting of the cracks of her being like, you know, this really wasn't okay. And what I really liked that tied back into that was, you know, this season we had the episodes with Debbie, with the guest star Vanessa Bayer. And when Mm -hmm. she's got them all tied up to the chair, and her mom was like, "I'm, I'm done with you. I'm disowning you. And... And uh, Rose is like, shut up. And she just flat out says, you know, I made excuse after excuse. But what I really would have liked is for somebody to have been like, yeah, you messed up, but we still love you. Let me, let me help you type of thing. Yeah. So even Brooklyn Nine-Nine is wonderful. And even as it was as much about her coming out, it was still about a deeper wound with her parents. 
Yes, that's a good way to put it. Because so it wasn't only the coming out. Yeah, it was more of a catalyst to address everything else in the family. Exactly. Yes, which honestly what coming out is for a queer person is a way to like start to like publicly address and socially address like who you are as a person and how and why you're changing. Mm-hmm. At least how I see it. Um, I once saw a really great tweet by a person about how like coming out and coming to terms with queerness is some allows you to get to know yourself in a way that most people don't because it really kind of forces you to confront societal conditioning and how it has impacted you in a variety of ways. But again, you know, this is something that's intensely personal. And for yes. me, I think where I start to get disturbed is when we start seeing fandoms and people feel like they have, like they're you're entitled to a complete stranger coming out. And I know a lot of them are like, oh, they'll be okay if they come out. They're they're an actor they're an act they're a singer like they're not going to face repercussions and it's going to mean so much more for all the closeted queer kids if they come out because of representation and i'm like you have no idea how this is going to impact them exactly because how dare you say this when if somebody came and just like forced frog marched you out in front of your family you would have a meltdown exactly i totally agree Everyone is closeted for a reason. I mean, we don't know celebrities' personal lives. We don't know, like, what they're dealing with. And Hollywood and the music industry ain't nearly as progressive as y'all think it is. No, no, no. Like, I remember reading that Carol Delevingne was told by Harvey Weinstein a few years ago that her being openly bisexual would really harm her career. And this was, like, around 2014. You know, I mean, I think people forget that Gay marriage was only, like, legalized fully in this country five years ago, this upcoming June. Like, it's yeah, still pretty recent. Because everything happened so quickly, I think people kind of forgot. And especially, you know, for a lot of younger fandom, it happened during their formative teen years. So they yes. didn't really have time to marinate in, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do that. It's... You know, okay, well, we can do this now. Yes, it reminds me of an article that was cited in a past podcast episode on um, Kai's The Great the Gay Migration and how there's so much, there's enough queer content now that people can be, pick and choose what they watch now. You know, Which, you know, there's no reason to keep picking the two same two archetypes anymore. We have choice. We have choice. We have a lot of choice. Historically, we've never had so much choice. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> no, you're good. I'm just trying to think of, like, what to say next and checking my notes. Um, let's see. But, I mean, you're right. Yeah. We, have more, we are spoiled for choice comparatively. Um, you know, I've told the story before when I was in high school, you know, freshman in college. In college, the stuff I watched, it, you know, I mean, like, I had Lost and Delirious. You want to talk about an uplifting comedy? I mean, it's almost traumatic. So, I, I mean, I've talked about the first real representative film I saw that made me feel okay with this part of myself was Alice Wu's Saving Face. And I remember... Mm-hmm. At the time, there were critics saying, well, this is unrealistic. It's too happy at the ending. This stuff, this would never happen. And Wu, to paraphrase, had said something along the lines of, like, that's the point. You have to start imagining that this is normal, that it can happen. So mm-hmm. you go from there, fast forward, you know, 10, 15, some odd years later, and on one network alone... The CW, and I know Sahar has many, many opinions on the CW, but if you just look at the CW alone, that show might as well be, that channel might as well be the Rainbow Brigade. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the CW because I was actually re-watching the pilot of Constantine the other night and then explained to one of my housemates how when they brought him onto, the, I think, the show Legend of Tomorrow, they actually, like, corrected their mistake and made him visibly bisexual as he was in the comics. Like, mm-hmm. they didn't ig- ignore it. 
And in regards to coming out and how it relates to fandom and celebrity stuff, I mean, coming out is a process. You don't just come out to everyone in your life once and you're done. It is something you have to do constantly, especially if you're not very visibly queer. Like if, and then on top of that, you can come out more than once in your life. And it's often, and it's not uncommon for queer people to do, you know, there's the, you've got like a bisexual being, you know what, actually I really think I'm a lesbian or you have somebody who comes out as a lesbian and is like, actually I think I'm bisexual or, you know, or you come out as a lesbian and then realize, wait, I'm genderqueer. I mean, there's, many levels of coming out and like you said you don't just do it once and you're done there's multiple people you come out to in multiple settings and some people you don't come out to and when we think we're entitled to have a celebrity come out we're completely not thinking about all the levels in their lives that they have to navigate yeah like for dan howell on youtube he in his coming out video where he came out as queer, he talked about how you had all these, like, intense shippers of him and Phil, his um, collaborator and who he was romantically involved with at least mm-hmm. once in his life, and how traumatic it was. It was very, like, triggering for him because it brought back all this trauma from his youth about being, you know, dealing with homophobic backlash from people and bullies. And it's like he was closeted. He didn't want people speculating on him being with his co-host, especially because they were together. And, and there's times when, you know, I'm sorry, they're just, they're not queer. They're straight. And just as you would feel really weird if somebody writes writes fanfic about you in, like, straight heterosexual sexy times with somebody... Well, A, just don't do that and send it to him to begin with. Like, don't break that fourth Yeah. Time. Oh, yeah. But you, you get what I'm saying. It's like, we don't want to be try to be like, I know your sexuality better than you do, even though I'm just a random person that you've never met in your life, and I've built up this parasocial relationship with you in my head. Yeah, and then, like, you have people, like, making, like, master posts of proofs of this stuff. Master yeah, posts of evidence. That's... that's you can privately speculate between your friends of like, hey, you know, let me, there's some signs sometimes that, you know, things read as very queer. And I think it's okay if you're like, yo, did you see that? And, but that should be as far as it goes. There should not be like, I'm staking out and stalking everything you do and I'm making Tumblr posts about it and I'm devoting an entire website to it and I'm spamming everybody you know. I definitely agree. It is, it's just bad and unhealthy for everyone involved, especially the person who's being speculated upon. You know, and like, yeah, there are people that come out, but the celebrities that are coming out are doing this on their terms. I know we had, um, Rebecca Black came out. I mean, go her. I still love Friday, unironically. Um, yes. Dominique Provo-Chocley came out, you know, and this, Mm -hmm. I'm going to stress, you know, both of the actresses in your ship coming out as queer is not necessarily normal, so you shouldn't get it in your head, like, oh, this happened, so I can start expecting it of these other ships. Like, please don't. Anecdotal coming out does not statistical empirical evidence make. Mm Mm-hmm. And even if it did, you're still not entitled to their coming out. So, can we not? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else came out recently, too, but I can't remember who. Oli, um, Cravalho, Cravalho. Oh, the yeah. One, uh, yes. Oh, man. Yes. Ali Cravalho, Cravalho. I actually listened so to. I'm sorry. We can normally say her name, but I am blanking right now, and I feel like his shithead. Allie. I actually l- watched a video on this where she explained how to pronounce her name know, this morning, and I'm like, I, I can literally see her saying it in her head, but I can't make my mouth. We're really sorry. We'll <laughs> say it correctly next time. I promise. We just don't have the video in front of us. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah. yeah, she came out recently as bi, didn't she? Yes, she did. And that kind of leads into my next point on how we almost get to decide what labels to use for people. You know, for the longest time, I would see people refer to Kesha as bisexual because um, in the 2010s, Kesha would mention a few times being attracted to people um, regardless of gender. You know, it wasn't about a boy or girl, it was about their soul. And in a recent interview, the interviewer asked if she was bisexual. She's like, oh, yeah, I'm bisexual. But that was the first time I think she's ever, like, used that label for herself. And it gets kind of complicated because it's, like, it's important to... Acknowledge that what she said back then is not 100% straight, but there's a difference between somebody saying they're on the queer spectrum and explicitly saying they're bisexual. Yeah, especially because bisexual, like, once you start researching its history, has, like, I think you could argue that the term bisexual is three definitions. What the no, straights say probably is... probably its own episode, too. <laughs> probably, yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably. I'm probably going to be asking Taylor back quite a bit. She's going to be our new resident historian for me. How, how do you like that? I'm totally fine I'm with that. I... Um, I do want to say really quick, though, uh, Gretchen, one of our other managing editors, she also does the History is Gay podcast, and it's maybe not necessarily quite as much Syrian history that I think Taylor maybe is going to be delving into with us, but especially for like historic figures, you know, I know we mentioned um, Emily Dickinson and Sue Gilbert early earlier in the episode, but if you guys want to read about, I shouldn't say read, but listen to um, some pretty awesome people going on about queer historical characters, that would definitely be something for you to check out. Um, also, this is kind of related to the term, the label bisexual and coming up multiple times. There's actually a lot of people who, like, David Bowie is seen as a queer bisexual icon and important for bisexual culture making, but a lot of young people today think David Bowie isn't bisexual, and that's because they don't do their research well. There's often a quote attributed to David Bowie in the early 80s where he talks about how coming out as bisexual in the 70s was a big mistake for him, how he was actually closet heterosexual. And if you actually go to bi.org, they list, like, all these famous people who are bi. And on their David Bowie page, they mention a quote from him in, like, 2002, where the interviewer asked him about that comment about being closet heterosexual. And David Bowie was like, I said that at the time, because I was getting a lot of flack from the American public. Basically, David Bowie was a bisexual man, but him coming out as bisexual in the 70s overshadowed his career in the United States, and it made him this figurehead, this representative of something he didn't want to represent. And and so it kind of this idea he recloseted himself because he had all this pressure on him as a queer man in, you know... 1970s, 1980s, United States. And... I think that's another thing, we ha- especially with feeling entitled to somebody else coming out, is you're putting that kind of burden on them. It's like yes. They have to represent for all of us. And, y- you know, you wouldn't be comfortable with that burden being placed on you, but we seem to be perfectly comfortable with setting that mantle really on complete strangers and being like, okay, now you get to go off into the world and you have to be our official spokesperson. And then it sets up for, because nobody's perfect, this person we've put on an impossibly high pedestal is invariably going to make a fuck up and then we're going to do that we're going to cancel them we don't like them anymore stand somebody else how dare they and bring it up for years and again we don't do this to ourselves so why are we doing this to other people i once saw a great tweet about how cancel culture is actually discarding culture where the first thing we do when a person does something we don't like we just throw them away and how counterproductive that is to actual mm-hmm. progress. I mean, I, I've gotten... 
I know we've talked about cancel culture on the fundamentals before, and we've tried to be very careful about acknowledging that it is a way to try to hold people in power accountable in ways that we really have very other little power of doing. But the problem is that we now, it's it's almost like a joke that X so-and-so is over party hashtag on Twitter. I was just going to say, I've seen that hashtag so many times the past few months. And as a Swifty, I'm just like, what? Like... But, and then we turn it over to, we, we try to weld it as a blunt instrument, and we turn it over to non-celebrities or people who don't have any kind of access. And the thing of it is, is those very high-powered people are generally going to walk away from a Twitter slash fandom canceling A-okay. I mean, I'm sorry, that's just the nature of the machine we live in. It's true, yeah. But like when people... we turn that attention to somebody who doesn't have those protections, like we ruin lives. I and totally I'm not agree. Saying that there are certain people that do things that are just really no, you should not have a space in this sphere. What you did was heinously fucked up. I'm not saying that there aren't times when we need to put our foot down and be like, no. You did something that is so incredibly offensive. You don't need to be in our community. You don't need to be around our community members. You need to go away and you need to think about what you've done. There Mm -hmm. are absolutely instances, you know, you've got abusers in spaces where that happens too. But, and I'm going to bring this up and I may get some backlash on this, but uh, ContraPoints. Yes. Got some backlash. And... She's talked about before she struggles with depression and alcoholism, and it was very clear that she was really personally struggling. And, you know, I think she's talked about it better than we can on here, but when we kind of weaponize it to just go after somebody we don't like, we're causing actual harm. And it it goes back to being rooted in that entitlement of, well, I, I don't feel like... I should have to listen to this person do this thing. And you're coming from a place of relative privilege of like, I can do this to this person. It's okay. Everything's okay with me. I was thinking a lot about ContraPoints with when writing up notes this episode because she is someone who has come out multiple times in different ways. Mm-hmm. And every time she has faced a lot of criticism for that and the idea that as she joked in her most recent video titled Shame, you know, be, people have seen... a lesbian. Yeah, how people see you as dramatic and wanting just attention if you come out more than once, when actually, again, it's a process, and we aren't entitled to someone giving us everything at once. It takes mm-hmm. time for people to understand themselves, and they have to do that in private. And that relates to cancel culture, because, as you mentioned in your canceled video... A genuine apology is usually not something done very quickly. It's something that takes time. But people are entitled to a very immediate response if someone is canceled. And when we cancel a vulnerable person, you know, marginalized creators are more likely to be hurt by cancel culture. And that perpetuate helps to perpetuate the cycle of there not being enough representation in media because Mm -hmm. some of the best people to create said media are being pushed away. Like, I spaces. Yes. Like there was a woman, uh, a Chinese writer who was writing this like, um, fantasy with a Chinese protagonist and her book was almost canceled right before it came out because people were like decrying her depiction of slavery as not accurate to American slavery. When in fact she was not writing about slavery in the United States or slavery based on Western culture. And a few weeks ago, I got into the show has been hotel. Like, and I remember getting into watching it and had heard about some controversy related to it. And just the vitriol thrown at this creator was ridiculous. I mean, 
people accusing her of creating, you know, a fiery Latina stereotype when the creator is in fact Latina herself. And as she explained on Twitter, you know, I take pride in being a a fiery Latina, you know, and having that passion. And also people, you know, accusing her of creating, like, really bad representation because her queer characters weren't pure angels. When, in fact, the whole premise of the show is that these characters are in hell. People who end up in hell are not good people by default. Like, and the whole point of the show is that these characters are going to try and rehabilitate themselves so they can get into heaven. Right. It goes back to this idea of people feeling entitled to perfect single types of queer stories and queer characters. Their perfect single queer story. They want to have their perfect single queer story. I think that's what it boils down to. Yes. And I mean, we're kind of running out of time, but I think that's ultimately where we're getting to is the root of it is you want your specific single, singular, perfect story being told. And the only person who can really tell that story is you. You can't recreate it in stories that other people are telling. You certainly can't have real people recreate that for you. So, I mean, as far as all of this, it's like, you know, if we look at our history and how much has changed and how much is going to keep changing and we have to be able to own ourselves for better or for worse and move along with it otherwise we're going to be perpetuating some really harmful just some really harmful stuff I mean you know we, we you talked about what coming out used to be and what it turned into because certain people got involved you know we don't want to do that with our own community Yeah, like, I was actually really moved just by the idea that coming out meant to come out into, coming out into a group with your fellow queer people because it meant that what straight people thought of us didn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's the idea that we define ourselves and we we define ourselves in relation to people who care about us and won't judge us for who we are. Yeah. But now we're being judged by the people who should be the most accepting. Exactly. So anyways, we're going to wrap up there. I know this was a deeper episode than some of what we've done most recently. But we are, you know, like I said, Ladies First is back and we're going to be doing monthly episodes. And that also means we're going to have some meatier topics from time to time. And um, I already asked Taylor earlier in this episode to come back for the Butch Femme episode, which I'm sure is going to be cracking. Um... We'll have some lighter stuff from time to time, too. I know Taylor and I have talked about um, one episode we would like to do is queer representation in music videos, so that should be fun. But, you know, we would love to hear your thoughts on this. I know we've kind of covered a lot today, and we're going to have funner episodes, too, like I said. But we would love to hear what you guys think about this and what you think about the history. If you learned something from this, um... Maybe you have some knowledge that Taylor and I don't necessarily. Maybe you have some sources that you'd like for us to check out that would add to, you know, our discussion on this. Or maybe you just want to be like, learn how to say people's names. And we will. We promise. But leave us a comment if you have any thoughts on this. If you have any suggestions. Like I said, if you maybe have some sources that Taylor and I haven't seen or... Maybe you know some historical figures that would be relevant to this conversation or other conversations we might have. And if there's some topics you might like for us to delve into, since we are going to be going into uh, queer history more this year. So, again, thank you, Taylor, for guesting. And thank you for however many episodes I'm going to wrangle you in on for later in the year. (laughs) No, thank you for this opportunity. This is so much fun and a great way to like put all my research put all my research into action there you go see i'm doing taylor a favor i'm not making (laughs) her do anything it's great (laughs) uh don't forget we do have other uh podcasts on the fundamentals network we have the fandom meeples we have our live play rpg uh faith forge academy we have uh beneath the screen of 
the Ultra Critics, we have Unabashed Book Snobbery, we have Fundamentalist, and then also Sahara and I have another podcast called That's Haram, where we talk about a lot of um, Muslim representation in media and how Islam is interpreted in media, and we have fun with that too. Uh, Sahara's also going to be on a couple of these episodes of Ladies First. She co-hosts with me fairly frequently, so you'll see her back before long um taylor i may have you two do something with me too so we have okay, some cool. fun we have some fun stuff planned i have some fun stuff planned taylor may not know what i have in store for her yet but i have fun things planned so thank you guys for tuning in uh please stay safe during this time i know we're in a period of uncertainty and a lot of you are stressed i'm stressed taylor are you stressed um a little i mean yeah i have i have to actually work out and <laughs> the real world right now and wear masks and gloves to work so it's an interesting time yeah so you know if if you're an essential worker please stay safe hopefully maybe we gave you an hour of stuff to distract you and if not to distract you at least if you're angry at us you're not thinking about the other shit going on (laughs) so you know we did our duty stay safe we will be back next month bye-bye goodbye